Hello and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Available in video format from FunkinStuff.net and also on YouTube. Truth and Rhythm can now also be enjoyed on the go in its audio podcast version from FunkinStuff.net, iTunes, and other leading providers. I'm Scott Dr. GX Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guide to Funk. Get your copy if you don't have it. Whether you're watching or listening, I thank you so much for your ongoing support. And you've tuned into a great show this time because our guest is none other than trumpeter Tom Brown, one of the 1980s most popular and successful jazz funk artists. Best known to a wide audience for the 1980 funk classic, Funkin' for Jamaica, Throughout the past several decades, Tom has uh, continued to straddle musical idioms that also include traditional to fusion to smooth jazz, R&B, world music, and even hip hop. All told, Tom has released a dozen albums with the most recent being uh, 2016's Legacy. And he's worked with such prominent artists as Marcus Miller, Dave Grusin, Michael Johnson, Marie Starr, David Spradley, Ted Courier, Felton uh, Pilot, Bobby Humphrey, Ron Carter, Idris Muhammad, Bobby Lyle, Bob James, Jill Sample, Roy Ayers, and it goes on and on. Um, coming up, we'll find out how Tom began his life in music. We'll talk about his early influences in years as a professional musician. We'll get into how he landed a record deal and what it was like when he scored a hit song. We'll discuss his subsequent run of hit tracks and albums. We'll talk about his break from record making and his other life as an airplane pilot. And finally, we'll speak about his return to music and what he's up to today. So with all that, Tom, how are you today? Hi, great to be here. Glad, glad, to, glad to be on the show. Appreciate it. Good to see you. Fellow North, North Carolinian. Yeah, yeah. We, we, uh, I, I, I can't say New York City too loud here because I might get something thrown at me, but um, we're glad to be in North Carolina. We really yeah, well, there's certainly a lot of New York transplants down this way too, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, are you ready to uh, jump into some questions? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So tell me about your musical youth and your progression influences and what attracted you to trumpet in the first place, Tom? Well, there was just something about the, the regalness and the royalty of the sound of, of brass. Uh, I saw that as a classical trumpet player. I was trained classically. Uh, a gentleman named uh, Murray Karpolowski was my first teacher. Who was the, he was the principal. Uh, for I think the NBC orchestra under Toscanini years ago, uh, so I, I had a very staunch classical background, classical training, and uh, the, the, the trumpet just drew me to it. I mean, uh, I, I can't put my finger on what it was, but it was just that whole regalness of the instrument that that uh, that that I guess got me. Uh, I got involved in jazz when I was in college, uh, and a friend of mine introduced me to of all things, an Ornette Coleman record. So here, here I am being a, a, a staunch classical player, and the first thing I hear is outside jazz, you know, Ornette Coleman, Don Cherry. So I, I immediately rebelled, didn't, didn't want to deal with it. Uh, but what it did was it enabled me to really get into hearing some of the more technically affluent uh, jazz players, Clifford Brown, Lee Morgan. Uh, Fast Navarro, Dizzy Gillespie, and so I, I really dug my heels in there and, and, uh, and did a lot of listening at that point. 
And, you know, when did you get into the flugelhorn? Was it a simultaneous thing with trumpet, or how did that work? Uh, no, I got the, the, the flugel came along years later. Uh, the, the approach is like is two different instruments. I mean, although most trumpeters also play flugel, but, but you have to approach it like a completely separate axe. Uh, but it, it came around five or six years later uh, as, I, as I started to uh, play out more and found that there was a, an avenue for a more mellow instrument, more melodic instrument. Uh, at that point, I did pick up flute. And when did you first kind of get out there and get over, you know, your stage butterflies and kind of, you know, really get out to an audience? Who, who said I ever got over them? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I guess my first um, uh, real performance dates were with a gentleman named Weldon Irvine, uh, which happened around uh, 74, 75. Uh, Weldon, although not a very well-known writer and performer, he's responsible for just about every jazz musician that came out of Jamaica. I mean, he, he uh, put the group together that had Lenny White, Marcus Miller, uh, myself, uh, Jerry Vimola, um, just just about anybody who came out of Jamaica Queens had gone through that Weldon Ravine, uh, Bernard Wright, uh, you know, school of music. You know, I'm not very familiar with uh, Jamaica. I mean, I know Queens uh, somewhat, but you know, what what was it like there? Was it sort of a melting pot and music just kind of flowing out of there? Because of, I mean, later uh, I think wasn't Run DMC from that area, and I mean, there's been a lot of music to come out of there. So, what is it about that area? It it during the '60s, '70s, and '80s. It was a very unique spot because you had headline jazz musicians living side by side, headline funk players. Uh, so on one block you had James Brown, and a couple of blocks away you had Count Basie, and just just that constant mixture of you know the jazz cats, no the funk cats, it, just that constant interchange produced a very unique for that period uh, group of players that were into both styles and understood both styles and were well-versed in both styles. So what would you say is the most challenging aspect of, of playing the trumpet? Um, you know, what, what in your mind makes a player move from being competent to good to being outstanding? Uh, for, for me, there's always the technical aspect. It's just a given that uh, and and I say this to every jazz student that I have because I get a lot of players that will come to me and say, "I want to learn how to play jazz." Okay, that's, that's great. Well, I hope I hope that doesn't mean you don't want to learn how to play your instrument, because uh, I would expect the technical aspect to be there. Uh, the whole idea in in playing any instrument in jazz, including the voice, is to have your facilities so refined that any idea that comes to your head you can call on uh, so it's definitely not an escape from being a, a verse technical player uh, but what I look for in a jazz player is uniqueness uh, you know when you, when you listen to Dizzy or you listen to Clifford or you listen to Lee all it takes is one note Freddie Hubbard one, one note and you know who the player is uh, the, I don't know if I can say those days are still uh, very much present uh, because we're in a we're in a time now where the schools are cranking out musicians where the goal is to be a copy of somebody uh, 
and that kind of gets away from the whole idea of uniqueness. Uh, I, I really look for a player who just stands out and is unique in their craft, but still has the, the, the foundation there. So today maybe we're getting more uh, competent players, but not, you know, real um, innovative players. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're very, very good, very technically correct players, but I don't know about the artistry, uh, the, the, the whole idea of, of uh, you know, Dizzy, Dizzy Gillespie was asked in a clinic one time, uh, what is it that makes – uh, your jazz solo. What, what do you, what do you play? I'm trying to remember the word. What do you? How did you play this particular jazz solo? And his answer his answer was classic. He said, "Oh, it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that." And that's that's basically it. I mean, you 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 can teach how to reach down into your soul and pull out jazz, but I don't know that you can teach jazz. You can teach someone how to bring out what's in there but the whole idea of teaching someone to play it it now be okay to do that now it becomes regimented now you're you're, you're learning patterns and you're learning to spit back uh pre-thought out and pre-formulated idea i don't know that that's jazz uh that might be you know etudes and technically correct but that's not spontaneous yeah and i think um you know there's there's a there's like a point where you you get that technical ability, and at some point you have to break away into your own style and, and being able to do your own thing and not being so conscious of the technical part of it. But also, you know, if you're going to be able to play the music that you played, you got to be able to be, know how to lay back in the groove too. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the, one of the things that uh, amazes me about players like, like a friend of mine, George Benson, is that uh, – we could ask George, hey, do you know this particular song? And he'll say, no, but just go ahead and play it. And within the first two bars, he's already heard it, caught you, and passed you. Uh, because he's got ears that are just able to uh, assimilate, you know, what's going on in the song, what the music is about, and put it all together and put out creativity. And that, and that's what I'm talking about. Uh, just, just really being able to have your foundation there, have your, your, your strength there in your technical aspect, but to use it as a, as, as a springboard, you know, where creative, as you said, where creativity takes over and, and builds from that. And it's not just the technical aspect or not just the patterns, not just the etudes. You know, so many players today, you know, you will hear a set of chord changes and, and to them, that's an opportunity to, to drop, you know, pattern 101 or pattern 250s. Yeah. That's that's not jazz. It's just not. It's really not. You know. Well, how much time though is you know sort of innate talent though versus what can be learned? Well, it, it can be learned. It can be learned by exposure. And this was this was the thing that was unique about Jamaica Queens, is that uh, we could go out and hang out at some of the clubs. There was one place in particular that was a Chinese restaurant called the Village Door, uh, and uh, we, we could hang out in this place and Freddie Hubbard might come walking in. Richard Williams was in there all the time. Lenny White might come walking in. And so you were just in an environment where you heard these greats. You heard how they interacted. Uh, just a very local local scene, nothing fancy. It wasn't you know, $50 to get in. It was just walking and have some egg full young. Uh, and uh, 
just going through that night after night after night, that exposure, it enabled you to formulate ideas of your own. It enabled you to say, oh, that works, or I didn't dig that, or that might work for me, or let me try it. You know, so it was just a very creative time period that uh, I, I don't see happening too much today. I wish it were. Uh, but I think, I think with a lot of the greats passing on, it's kind of hard to, cre to recreate that these days. Yeah. Well, that's part of the reason why I really want to do this program, too, is to, you know, get a lot of these guys that are still around before more are no longer with us. So, yeah, yep. yeah it's important, really important to uh, open people's minds and ears to it that maybe haven't been exposed before. And longtime fans, you know, they eat it up. So it's important. Um, you mentioned a couple of guys, Tom. Who might be some of your other um, musical inspirations, whether on the trumpet on a different instrument who are some of your you know real um musical heroes inspirations um guys that inspired you or you looked up to well well my 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 all-time uh all-time favorite trumpet player is freddie hubbard uh freddie was was incredible uh Fre freddie had the technical aspect but he was one of the uh, not only a strong bebop player i mean he has a whole lineage of uh 50s and 60s bebop but he really was one of the cats along with lee that that established this whole pre-funk uh thing that was happening in the 60s he was really playing funk before it was called funk uh, you know he was, he was getting into that vein of, of okay let's stretch out from straight ahead and let's get, get this other thing you know right right around the whole time that the 60s thing was happening he was really uh, really doing that in the '70s with with CTI Records, so he has to be my my all time favorite trumpet player. Uh, probably uh, mm, trying to think who who besides Lee, um, but but Lee and Freddie I think were probably my favorites. I expected you to mention Miles, but. In a, in a separate way, um, I mean, Miles was definitely unique. Miles was definitely uh, one of the foundational cats. Um, Miles, more than anybody else, uh, established how to use space in playing. You know, what, what, what he didn't play was almost as important as what he did play. Mm -hmm. uh, Miles, for me, and I'm just speaking for Tom Brown, I mean, uh, uh, a lot of people disagree with me. Miles for me did not exhibit the technical aspect that I that I yearn as well. Um, so uh, artistically, I mean, he's phenomenal, uh, but he just he didn't really do it for me as far as a technical trumpet player. Um, and that's just personal taste. I mean, you know, someone else could say something totally different, and I'm, I'm sure they would. Sure, it's not a sin. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, Tom, could you explain the uh, series of events that led to you getting a, a record deal with uh, Arista um, GRP uh, and, and, you know, what was the uh, sequence of events that led to Brown Sugar? Uh, I, w I was certainly not looking for a deal. Uh, I had resolved that music was my, it was not going to be my career, it was more my cool out my I won't say my hobby it was more than a hobby but it was where I went to escape uh, whereas you know friends went to play ball or something else I escaped in the music uh, 
and I just happened to be playing some of the local clubs in New York City, and I ended up playing a club uptown New York uh, with a gentleman uh, named Lonnie Smith. Not Lonnie Listen Smith, but Lonnie Smith, the, the jazz organist. Mm. Uh, phenomenal player. Uh, and uh, it was a club called Breeze and Lounge, and that, that name should have given it away, uh, but I didn't make the connection at the time. Breeze and Lounge was, uh, I think it was 143rd and Broadway in Manhattan. Uh, and it was managed and owned by a gentleman who was George Benson's first manager. Uh, as I said, the, the name should have given me the connection, but I, you know, didn't didn't put it there. Uh, and basically, everybody who was anybody used to come into the place. Earl Clue was in there all the time. Uh, uh, Dr. George Butler from Columbia would come in there regularly. Uh, Creed Taylor was in and out of there. And I ended up getting, just sitting in playing trumpet, I ended up getting record offers from all these folks, from, from CTI, from Columbia. Warner Brothers flew me out to California. Uh, the, the, the first one was with CTI. And, I mean, Creed obviously has a history of doing wonderful, wonderful stuff with, with, uh, with Human Laws and Freddie Hubbard. So my first inclination was, yeah, let's do it. Uh, and Jimmy Boyd, uh, so, took a look at my contract and ripped it up. She <laughs> just, just tore it up in front of my face. And I was, what the heck? You know? uh, but he, he told me, you could do better. Well, I guess I will, because he, <laughs> he just tore it up in front of me. Wow. Uh, but he had a plan, and uh, I signed on with him as a manager. He had a plan, and his plan turned out to be correct. Uh, we got offers from Columbia and Warner, and the idea was, look, if we go with Columbia, they had Miles, they had Chuck Manjoan, uh, a couple other trumpet players, and if I didn't produce a record that was a hit, I would just put get put on the shelf, called the tax write-off, and that would be the end of that. Mm -hmm. We ended up going with a brand new company that had no trumpet players, they, they were jazz label, uh, and they were breaking out, budding young artists, and that was GRP Records. Uh, Dave Grusin and Larry Rosen ended up having probably what was the hottest uh, crossover jazz. Smooth, at that time, it wasn't called smooth jazz, but you know, contemporary jazz label, probably in the world at that point, uh, which was GRP. And so, how long did it take to make the record? Um, how did you get connected with some of the players? Um, the, the beautiful thing about working with someone like Dave is that, uh, he was, a, he was a master producer, still is a master producer. Uh, he doesn't necessarily try to change an artist. He's able, just like Quincy Jones, to hear an artist, take what they do and find a niche that works for them, as opposed to some other producers that just want to change you and say, here, play this. Uh, so Dave, Dave had a plan, uh, was for a, a crossover pop record. Uh, he knew all the studio musicians, Steve Gadd, Buddy Williams. Uh, Marcus was just getting in the scene at that time. Uh, Francisco Santano and uh, quite a few others. And so any, any of the connections that were made at that point, I'd have to give Dave and Larry uh, credit for. La Larry, and unfortunately, who passed recently, just about a, about a year ago, Larry Rosen uh, passed. But uh, they, they were foundational in, in uh, putting that first record together. Yeah, I'm looking at the credits here. You had Michael Brecker on there also. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I know she did a cover of uh, The Closer I Get to You, which was also covered. Uh, well, of course, Roberta Flack had 
the big hit with it. Right. And I know and Tume put it on their album. Yep. Pretty close to the time when you came out with it too. So Yeah. Yeah, very popular song and a great singer, Patty Austin, on, on that uh, on that track. Oh yeah. Now that was um before she really took off with Quincy Jones, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean Pat, Patty is doing wonderfully. Uh you know, 30, 30 years later. So how, how do you feel about how the record was received, how it did commercially? How, how do you feel about it artistically? Uh, I, I, I still, it's, it's my debut album. I mean, it still is a, to this day, it's a, a, a staple in the crossover jazz uh, archives. Um, I look back at most of the records I do and say, I wish I had done that differently. That's just my nature. I mean, I get through one record and go, gosh, you know, why not do that? Um, which I guess for me, it just keeps me moving, keeps me fresh. Uh, when, when, you know, when you stop learning, you know, you got to see if there's six feet of dirt on top of you at that point. So, uh, but, but I, I'm appreciative of it. I mean, it, it definitely did well. It sold, uh, over a hundred thousand copies, which at that time for a pop jazz record, you know, was, was great. Uh, you know, these, <laughs> these days to be, number one on the jazz chart you might sell five thousand records so it's it's a it's a whole different day today that's for sure that's for sure so just a year later your sophomore album was called love approach mm -hmm. it included the monster hit funkin for jamaica right it's the baddest cut that shaka khan never did <laughs> you know, so tell me about those sessions and the genesis of, of that track in particular tom you, you know even shaka khan said when did i do this record <laughs> Uh, that we, we had seven tracks completed for the Love Approach album, and uh, Arista, Arista was the parent company. Arista was the, the, the funding to GRP to do the records, uh, and they said, oh, it seems like it needs one more song, and we all agreed, and I said, okay, and I remember vividly going home. I had been working on this bass line, you know, I was... I had my little synth set up at my parents' attic at that point. I was working on this bass line and uh, put it together and went into the studio and taught it to Bernard Wright. And, you know, he played that. I said, no, no, it goes like, like, like this. Here's the vibe. And it was a constantly shifting. It had a lot of space to it, and it was constantly shifting. And I remember Bernard saying, oh, I dig. And, you know, he, he just jumped right into it with that whole Jamaica flavor. And it ended up being a jam session. That was a musical thank you to my hometown. Uh, we put we put that thing together track by track, really just having a very skeletal idea behind it. I mean, the whole rap and everything wasn't formulated. Uh, and when the whole thing was completed, <laughs> I remember, I mean, we put the horn lines on and everything. I remember Dave said, yeah, well, we got to do something to make it a trumpet record. You're a trumpet player. Da-da. <laughs> so here, here came this, these first. And, to this day, no matter how much bebop I play, those two notes are more popular than anything I've ever done. I, I accept it. It's just the way it is. God's got a sense of humor. I just I just accept it the way it is. Uh, but when we did that record, uh, Arista said, eh, yeah, nothing special, no problem. They, they didn't think much of it. Nobody thought it would do anything. Needed. We didn't have any great plans for it. It's a grower. It then just took off. It just took off on its own. There was no stopping. I mean, it's, it still gets major airplay today, you know, 40 years later. Uh, so, yeah, how did you, how'd you uh, connect 
Or how Tony Smith come into the picture? Tony Tony Smith was the fiance of the keyboard player that I had playing with my band at that time, uh, a guy named Eric Rail. Uh, and Eric Eric just you know told me, hey, I've got someone who's you know he, she's kind of in the Shaka Khan vein. Uh, I said, well, great, that would be perfect for this. Uh, Tony wrote the lyrics, and it just so happened that Shaka didn't have a record out at that moment. <laughs> Uh, it, I guess Shaka's record was due, and Jamaica Funk dropped, and everybody thought it was Shaka. Every, every, I get people today that's, oh man, that was a great Shaka record. Well, great, but it wasn't. <laughs> just, uh, and uh, if you look on, if you Google it online, Shaka actually did an interview where she was trying to remember when she did it because she thought she did it. She thought it was her record. Well, there were some fuzzy years back then too, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's tell you how naive I am. I was just, you know, high school then, and I thought it was, you know, Jamaica, the island. I didn't even know it was New York, you know? Yeah, that, that's that's the other one. And I put NY after it, but, you know, I, I get lots of people, oh, man, we want to thank you for how, for, the, for the major praise you, you, you brought to our island, man. I just like, okay, sure. I'll roll with it. <laughs> give, give me those tourist dollars. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll gladly go to Jamaica and play. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, I was saying it was a grower. You know, it's the kind of track that you hear, and it just, you know, it's like an earworm. It gets in there, and, I mean, it's infectious. Yeah. yeah. So. And I'm, I'm real thankful for the reception it got. I, I wonder, I'm curious if Shaka Khan's ever covered it on in a show. I I I haven't seen her do any recordings of it. I, I mean, uh, um uh, distributed recordings, but I have seen her do it live, and I have seen her do it. She, she's on YouTube doing it. Oh, so I'll have to look that up. <laughs> um, so what was it like when you first heard that on the radio? You know, because that's such an important time for so many artists. You know, I, I've heard so many say that okay, it's cool. You know, to know people are buying it, to know it's successful. When I hear it coming out of a car stereo, that's was amazing, you know, that kind of thing. So, what was that like for you? Uh, it, it was it was a blessing and a curse, uh, all in one. Uh, it was a blessing and, and continues to be a blessing. I mean, I, I, I basically paid my house off on Jamaica Farm. Uh, but what it did was pigeonhole a jazz trumpet player into a career. Going out with SOS, the Gap Band, and and Zap, all of whom are great groups, but it's just not me. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, in my earlier shows, we would do two or three songs that the people would really dig, and then beyond that, it was like, oh, oh, oh you know, what are we, what are we going to do for the next forty-five or fifty minutes? Um, because that's just not me. And, and, and it, it took until about. Ten years ago, and a lot of touring with with Roy Ayers, uh, we, we we toured together quite a bit. And Roy is the same way. Roy has had so many of those R and B hits, but he's a jazz player that he's learned to make peace with that, and he's learned to just say, "Screw it, I'm just going to be myself on stage. I'm going to have fun. You either like me, you don't like me. I'm just going to be myself." And being around that for a couple of years, I I learned just to stop trying to pretend, stop trying to pretend I was a funk artist. Stop wearing spandex. Stop, you know, all all that's just stop it. You know, and just be myself. I'm who I am. 
and like it or not, that's just the way. And and, oh, and as a result of that, over the last 10 years, my shows have really come together. They've really been doing very well uh, later in life. Well, that's excellent to hear. That was actually going to be my next question was that, you know, did you worry about uh, straying too far from the jazz purist sensibility, you know? Well, the jazz purists are always going to cut you to pieces, no matter what happens. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, I hear all the time, well, why did you, you sold out? Why did you do this? You're in bebop trouble. They said the same thing to George. It's real simple. I like to eat. That's why I did it. Because I like to pay my bills. I like, hey, if I, if I could have scored uh, some decent record sales as Winton does or as Terrence does, you know, playing bebop, I'd have been perfectly happy. Uh, but fate had it for me to score uh, a music success doing what I did. And I have to go with it. I mean, I'm, I'm not proud of it. I'm not ashamed of it. It's just what it is. It's a career. Uh, and so, you know, if you, uh, you know, if you're if you're in a factory that's making Mercedes, I mean, I could I could say, gee, I wish I would make BMWs, but I'm making Mercedes. So let me just go on and do what I do. Uh, so that that ended up being my my trademark and what I do. But I but I do play a set that's jazz formulated. That's jazz structured. Uh, and I hope that by the time people leave the show, they know, hey, you know, he's a, he's really a good jazz player as well as you know uh, a funster or whatever they want to call me. As, as long as it's not a sellout, that's that's right. Right. <laughs> well, I think well, I think, I think the key, Tom, also Tom also says that you know you know you can go you into can go other genres as, as long as you do it uh, very honestly, and you know you're true to it true to the music i mean that's part of that's the name of the show truth and rhythm but um i think that's why an artist like just out of the blue say like prince you know he did so many different types of music mm -hmm. but he was real in all those genres that he did and so he mm -hmm. was accepted by each of those audiences separately and i think you know that's the way to do it yep yep yeah prince had a had a terrific jazz group behind him uh that could break out playing anything at any time uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely feel you on that. that. That's pretty much an accurate statement. What, was there any uh, label pressure at the time? You know, the record label, they say, wow, we, we really like this uh, million seller or whatever. We want you to kind of do these types of tracks again. Was there any kind of headbutting in that regard? And, and, and hence the reason that I eventually ended up leaving Arista. Uh, yeah, once, once, once you deliver a, a gold or platinum album, it's kind of hard to say. Well, let's go back to playing pop jazz. You know, it's, they, they don't want to hear that. Uh, so after '80, it pretty much became give us give us more of this. Um, the, the 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 beauty about radio at that time was you could hear anything on the radio. I mean, you you could tune into a station and you'd hear Grover Washington, and right behind Grover you might hear the Commodores. Right behind the Commodores you might hear the Beatles. And right behind them, uh, uh, you might you, you'd hear anything as long as it was good quality music that public liked. There weren't all the pigeonholes and niches that there are today. You know, you didn't have to fit into any specific genre as long as it was good popular music. It got played. Um, unfortunately, record executives didn't think that way, and once record labels started to not have on staff producers. Like, you know, Quincy was originally an on-staff producer. Uh, Bob James was originally an on-staff. So once the labels lost folks like that, it became 
something that was more dictated by the accountants or the or the presidents. And the only thing that they could see was success, not success. Uh, they, saw, they saw Jamaica Funk as success, and by God, that's what they wanted for the rest of the album fear that I had with GRP. And they they ended up actually buying me out of GRP uh, straight on to Arista. And no matter how I tried to explain, look, I, I'm trying to do a variety of things here uh, that just didn't work. And they ended up putting me with other producers that had no concept of what I was doing. Or, or what type of artist that was, and it, it really just sunk the career at that point. Mm -hmm. I want to talk, uh, touch on some of those albums uh, during that period of time. So, uh, Magic came in, in 81, mm -hmm. and um, you know, you had Tony uh, prominent on that one again, Let's Dance, uh, Magic, uh, the title track, and uh, Thighs High, um, right? That was a a, a good follow-up to uh, Funkin' for Jamaica, and I, yeah. I enjoyed that record as a fun, it was quality funk. Um, what was interesting, though, and you're talking about the different, you know, straddling the different genres, on that same album, um, you have like a God Bless the Child cover, you know, right. so that's an interesting, you know, you're really spanning the spectrum there from Thighs High to God Bless the Child, so what do you remember about that record? Uh, well, again, that was the whole idea. The whole idea was not to tell the public, this is all I do. The whole idea was to cover, cover that ground. Uh, but, but the opportunities for doing that were narrowing in. Uh, and you're right, Thighs Hide was probably the closest on that record to follow Jamaica Funk. And it, it did quite well on its own. It, it, it uh, did a gold album as well. Um, but the, the the main thing I remember that period was just the the, the pressure to and, and the pressure was being put on Dave and Larry to cause them to produce me to narrow in and when that didn't happen, uh, I, I vividly remember Arista just buying me out of the GRP contract altogether and so basically saying we got it we'll do it. Uh, and that that obviously didn't work too well. Um, you know, there was there was a, there was a magic that was there with Dave that. Uh, this is very difficult to replace. So I'm looking at uh, you had yours truly. Were they they were still around for that one? Yeah, they were. Yeah, um, and the the lead single on that uh, is it Fungi Mama? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the other part, the other part, composition. Uh, but it was it wasn't meant to be like a heavy funk tune. It was just meant to be a fun track. Uh, it, it ended up being more of a novelty. Than anything, but uh, again, we were just trying different things and uh, seeing how it would work. It did got some airplay, it got some recognition, but it surely wasn't at the level of Jamaica Funk with Eyes High. Yeah, the subtitle of that, do you remember what that was? Yeah, be uh, be Baba Funk, uh, uh, let's see, be Baba Funk or Disco Lipso or something like that. Yeah, I think it sounds oh. a little Parliament Aqua Boogie influenced on that one. <laughs> So, and then what, let's talk about the compos uh, composing, Tom. So on every record, it seems like, you know, you did a few tracks of, of composing. Were you composing more than that? How did you decide, you know, how to balance other people's uh, compositions versus your own? Uh, Dave would bring, uh, Dave brought some compositions uh, and they were always, always quality, uh, quality stuff. I mean, Dave has a whole history of, you know, string arrangements and uh, TV scores. And so anything he brings is going to be a, a nice, nice arrangement. Uh, I think we did a track called Night Wind, uh, 
that I'm not sure if it was, I'm trying to remember which, I think it was on the Magic album. Uh, but, uh, so he would bring some tracks. Uh, he had uh, uh, friend composers, Dennis Bell, uh, who brought a couple of tracks. And then my band members were writing also. And so if I heard something from one of the band members I thought might be an interesting track, uh, I always gave them opportunity to write as well. They must have appreciated that. Uh, yeah, yeah, it uh, it enhanced their bank account, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> so in '83, it was a big change in that you went to different producers. You went to Rock and Radio with Michael Johnson and Marie Starr, and they had had uh, success with like the electro funk sound that was coming out at the time. Um, Johnson Crew and Restart did a bunch of other stuff. Mm -hmm. So it was much more electronic. Um, David Spradley and Ted Courier, who had the hit with uh, Sly Fox and were from Parliament and George Clinton. That was a big departure. Um, but you know what? The hip the hip hop though kind of had a jazz sensibility at the time. I mean, you had Herbie Hancock jumping in a rocket and that kind of thing. So talk to me about that change and how you felt about it. Uh, the, the, the Herbie Hancock's the perfect example, but the thing with Herbie is Herbie produced it. And Herbie, being the master musician he is, was able to hear the elements that he knew would work in that in that music. Um, when I was assigned to Maurice Starr and Michael Johnson, uh, obviously they've had tremendous success with you know Boys to Men and the whole, the, the whole crew that they had. But it just wasn't me, uh, and I, I don't think Maurice knew how to work with a jazz trumpet player. Just someone coming in who didn't you know didn't understand that stuff, kind of rebelled against that stuff a little bit. You know, because there, there was, a, I have to admit, there was an element in me that was like, oh, you know, that's not music. That's that, you know, that's that, uh, you know, every 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 jazz player says that at some point. Um, and so it just, yeah, I, I really didn't believe it. And I, and I think the lack of believability came through in the music. Uh, it was more or less something I was told, here, play this. You know, we want you to play this, so that's going to be your song. There wasn't an authenticity to it. Uh, and I think I think the audience that knew Jamaica Funk basically said, "What's you know, what's he doing? This is not the time we remember." Uh, and uh, none, none of those records did anywhere near what the what the earlier albums did. I gotta tell you though, I do like the groove of Cruising. Okay, well, that was, they did definitely some good tracks. Uh, yeah, that was that was that was by Ted, I think. Uh, yeah, period. it's got it's got that kind of uh, hypnotic kind of thing going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. so I go thumbs up on that one. Okay. <laughs> and then uh, Tommy Gun rounded out your um, Arista era, um, yeah. and that one was also um, really went to the electro funk thing. So I think more so even yeah. I guess that kind of put you over the edge, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that was joint production again by uh, Maurice. For uh, for uh, was that that was the one with Secret Fantasy, I believe, on it. Uh, yep. And then and then the other tracks were by Ted and, and uh, uh, David Spradley. Uh, so I I just really felt by that point I had lost my identity. I was pretty much at wit's end with Arista. I think they knew it. I definitely knew it. Um, and I, I was basically throwing up my hands saying, "Let me out!" At that point, uh, mm. my, my wife and I remember that period very well. Uh, <laughs> trying to break contracts. Uh, 
So did you actually uh, do anything in studio with those guys? Or was it kind of like uh, you would come in, they would come in? It, it was basically the tracks would be laid down uh, and they said, hey, come blow trumpet on it. So th there was no group interaction. There was no spontaneity. Uh, we just tracked it until it worked, basically. Uh, so you became almost like a guest on your own record. Correct. Correct. I noticed uh, uh, Felton Pilot from Confunction was on there too. Uh, how did that come about? Did you actually have any interaction with him? No, that was that was all you know. Ted or Maurice uh, making the hookups, uh, but. By the time I got to the studio, it was pretty much a completed track, just waiting for time to play on it uh, and, and mix at that point. Um, so, the, you know, all, all of the Jamaica spontaneity, the interacting with the guys, the feeling, the vibe, all that was long gone uh, by that point in, in my after career. It's amazing how fleeting that can be in the music industry. It's like, you know, yep. a, a year can be like a decade almost in that business. Yep. Yep, absolutely. So, uh, Tom, during that uh, period, though, when you were running hot, you know, you were you were you were happy where you were at, and the records were selling in the early '80s. You mentioned about going out with some of the funk bands that you really weren't a good fit with. Did you get out on your own much at all, or play maybe smaller venues, or do that kind of thing, or what, what was what was the, the the stage act for Tom Brown like during that period? We we did early on. Uh, obviously, when Jamaica was out, there was there was quite a bit of uh solo touring uh I, I made a crucial mistake uh and that was to overcharge and under deliver um uh, you know and, and i fault i fault myself as much as i fault my manager as much as i fault my booking agent on that uh it's much it's much better to uh charge less and let a promoter make money and be successful along with you rather than you trying to rake in all the money and then not do a good show and now everybody's unhappy and, mm -hmm. and saying oh we don't want that Tom Brown back again uh, and that, that was my problem because I didn't have an identity because I didn't know really what I was going to play on stage um, and because we were charging you know fifteen twenty thousand dollars a night for a show at that point um, it left a lot of bad taste in people's mouths Mm -hmm. uh, so if we went and opened or, or played with the Gap Band or SOS, where that's their forte, and you know after we did the show, people were like, "What the heck?" You know, well I like Jamaica Funk, but what about you? Know? So what started to circulate was, well we don't know about Tom Brown. You know, he's not really doing good shows, mm -hmm. um, and couple that with the high dollar, and your, your market tends to close down. It's much it's much better. To do uh, just, I, I remember vividly touring with Spyro Gyro uh, in that era. Here's a group that, you know, 35, 40 years later has staying power uh, because they, they learned the formula. They, they learned, you know, charge reasonably, deliver strong. Uh, and, they, and they just, they deliver what they do. They're great at what they do. They don't overcharge the promoter. Everybody makes money, everybody's happy. So the result is promoters always say, hey, let's get them back. Uh, I learned that late in life, but I did learn it. Um, so it's, it's better to learn it now than never at all. Did, did you feel comfortable on stage as the point of focus? Um, was that something you had to learn to be comfortable with? And did you sort of um, consciously work on you know, 
interacting more with the audience and that kind of thing. I had to consciously work on that. And, and again, until I worked with Roy regularly, uh, no, I really wasn't comfortable on stage. In fact, my wife would say, she would note that as soon as I finished playing trumpet, I would like look for a place to hide, basically. I'd go stand behind the pianist or stand behind, you know, back, back behind the drummer. And I was sure from the audience that looked like, you know, what the heck, you know, what's he, what's he doing? Uh, it just really looked like a lack of confidence. And I, and I had to get to the point, to be honest, where, where I had fun. And I just wasn't having fun on stage. I was a nervous wreck trying to figure out what to play. Mm -hmm. uh, I had to get to the point where I enjoyed being on stage. I enjoyed the audience. And I realized that they came to have a good time, probably more so than I did. Uh, and so, you know, just talking with them, joking with them, playing some music, letting them see that you're, you're a human being and, you know, you're having fun, you goof up on stage, you laugh it off. Uh, that's that's when I started doing good shows. And really, that wasn't more than 15 years ago. Uh, so it was, it was very late in my career that that started happening. Well, I mean, a lot of artists need coaching on that. I mean, it's not something that usually comes natural to, to somebody. So, you know, I think if you don't have that, then, you know, that's not a good thing. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe so. Uh, but it's definitely something that I liked. And, uh, you know, my, uh, my, my wife used to joke with me about it, but she's, she was 100% correct. Uh, I've got a lot of friends who are straight-ahead jazz players. One guy in particular that I know, monstrous player, but he would just basically get up there, stand there, and not move. And <laughs> I remember my wife saying, hey, I'd like to take a pin and stick it in his you know, thigh because was uh, a cattle prod. You're having fun. More, more so than you're playing, they want to know that you're enjoying what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they feed off that. Yeah, they feed off of that, exactly. So when you were playing with these uh, funk acts in the early 80s, what, what, was there anybody that you encountered that you actually, you know, were like impressed by their musicianship that you thought, well, these guys are kind of cut above. I, I kind of appreciate what they're doing musically or were they all just kind of one, you know, thing? Most, most of the funk acts, um, again, no, no, no putting down any bit, but most of the funk acts I couldn't relate to. Uh, because this whole idea of just having a band that, you rehearse lines, rehearse lines, rehearse parts, and you're going to go and play it exactly. That's just not what I'm about. Uh, I'm, I'm about what George Duke is about or, uh, you know, uh, Joe Sample was about, which is, you know, playing uh, music that's funk-oriented, but it's got so much of the jazz spontaneity to it that it's not locked in any groove. And, any, and really, any groove that's set up, is really set up on the spot at that time on stage. It probably won't be the same way tomorrow night. Uh, well, I, I feel you with that. I mean, I think that a lot of that was lost from the 70s to the 80s as far as mm -hmm. funk goes. I think in the 70s, a lot more of those funk bands were, you know, having more of a, a jazz sensibility in some of the, mm -hmm. the parts that they did. Well, even even uh, a group like Parliament, uh, that's what makes them so special. You can hear it in their music. It's more of a jam than it is, uh, you know, organized. Well, maybe organized is not the word, but it's, it's more of a jam and a structured presentation. You know, they, they the, the structure they have is to have fun jamming, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and it comes across like that. And 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 you can hear the difference between that and a rehearsed R&B group. It's just, 
It's night and day. Night and day.